loads of things motivate me. You know, if I go swimming in the morning, I I get up because it's what I do. It's habitual. I I I then walk downstairs because I'm looking forward to having a cup of tea. I get in the car because I'm looking forward to turning the heating heated seat on. I walk in the pool because I'm looking forward to seeing my friends. I dive in the pool because I have to motivate myself to go training and. I start pushing myself because I'm competitive and I'm racing someone. So whatever you've got there, you've got half a dozen forms of motivation. It's not always I'm doing this because it comes from a part of your mindset that's obsessional. I think um, I enjoy it. I enjoy most of my training. I enjoy pushing myself. Hello there to you. It's Steve Ingham here and thank you for listening into the Supporting Champions podcast, whether it's for the first time or if you're a regular. So I spent my career dedicated to and I'm fascinated by the process of supporting other people in the pursuit of performance, whether it's in sports, business, arts or exploration. And my real hope is that the conversations that I have with performers, coaches, researchers in this podcast can help you wonder, think differently, cope or nudge you along with whatever is in front of you at the moment. This week's guest is Alistair Brownlee. Now, Alistair probably doesn't need an introduction, but he's a two-time Olympic champion, four-time world and four-time European champion, amongst other many honours in triathlon. But quite simply, Alistair is one of the greatest racers in the history of the sport and probably across any sport in his generation. And what I mean by that is the habit that would probably annoy the living daylights out of his competitors, that he would turn up at a competition and win time after time. After the Rio Olympics, Alistair began racing over the half and then the full Ironman triathlon distances. For those of you who need a reminder of the distances, that involves a 3.86-kilometre swim, 180.25-kilometre ride on the bike, and then a marathon 42k run in that order. Um, but then you probably know that from having listened to Chrissy Wellington back in episode 18. A phenomenal achievement for anyone who does perform an, uh, an Ironman. And Alistair has set out a goal to perform that full Ironman in under seven hours. So think kind of Elliot Kipchoge sub two, but in Ironman terms. To put the performance into perspective, the current best time is seven hours 35 for a man. And there's a there's a women's version which is aiming to be sub eight. So I spoke to Alistair about this and um, Alistair was truly extraordinary to, to speak to. And I'll tell you why. Many athletes have physical abilities. Many have the will to win. But Alistair has these in bucket loads. Now, also, a lot of athletes are invested in the process of preparing and performing. They're interested in know how they can get better. But many of the best just need to stay out of the details and leave that to the coach or to the sport support team. Because sometimes, often for a, an athlete, a performer, overthinking the details can lead to a negative spiral where people become increasingly wound up by some of the minutiae. That's slightly different for Alistair. What was evident from this conversation that he has an extraordinary capacity to delve into the science, the rigor, the possibilities, the innovation, the deep understanding and testing what works for him. His appetite, his command of his discipline and his acumen to pioneer across the whole spectrum of physical, mental, tactical, technological methods, as well as go out there and perform, was extraordinary, truly exceptional. This bandwidth of capabilities was what was remarkable. This conversation for me was a masterclass in high performance and I was was left in no uncertain terms that Alistair is a true sporting great. All right. Well, what a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Alistair. How, How are you? Uh, yeah, very well, thank you. Um, just training hard in the middle of, uh, well, actually, hopefully we're coming out of British winter now. Um, normally I spend a bit more time away, but haven't been able to do that this year. So, yeah, looking forward to some better weather and some uh, easier training. And how's how's the training been going? Have you been what have you been able to do? Have you been able to do everything, or or limited? Um, training's been pretty good, actually, fairly consistent, um, so far this winter. Um, 
yeah, I kind of raced quite a lot up uh, into almost right up to Christmas and, and enjoyed doing that. And then uh, I've been home and just training away. And, and yeah, training normally, um, I guess normally I would be spend a bit more time in Spain in the winter. Um, and that does allow you to do slightly more intense stuff and have a slightly different kind of training program. But the kind of bones of my training, 80, 90% of the week is really quite similar. Um, it's irrelevant almost of the time of year anyway. Um, and also with, it, with the fact that the racing season is still quite a, you know, quite late. It's looking like best case scenario, um, early May for, for a bit of racing. So um, yeah, with, with that case, uh, yeah, I've just been um, taking it a bit slower, I guess, uh, building the training up and um, yeah, f- feeling quite good. So that, that sounds like you're coping with the winter weather and the high winds this week, particularly, um, as opposed to training camps. You, you don't have a special dispensation for being able to travel to be able to do that at the moment then? Yeah, well, I definitely could travel uh, and I travelled a lot before Christmas Um I ended up going to races in um, what, Germany, uh, I, I raced in Sardinia, raced in Spain, raced in Florida, um, so spent a bit of time in the US um, and was lucky enough to get the dispensation to travel and, and travel back okay and um, yeah, that, that was all great. Um, we just kind of took the decision earlier this year, we, well kind of in January we thought well maybe we'll go to Spain in February and, and then as the situation got a bit worse, our, our kind of being we were kind of worried about being stuck abroad and we think, you know, it's kind of all right being stuck in Spain for uh, a few weeks, but we didn't want to be there for potentially months. So we decided actually, no, let's stay at home where we've got, um, yeah, we've got a great setup. You know, it's not like I'm not moaning about it, a great setup uh, of training and obviously the support system around us in terms of, yeah, physio when you need it, got got the gym coach, got the massage, um, got medical support and, and all those kind of things. So, um, yeah, which is obviously a, a little bit harder abroad. Oh, that's interesting in that sense of just judging the risks and the benefits of each one, really, in that sense of thinking, well, if something does go wrong, you perhaps haven't quite got the same knowns that you might have at base where you have got everything within touching distance. Was that part of the decision-making? Yeah, that was definitely part of the decision-making. Um, there's definitely times in um, in the year, in the lead-up to races or, or whatever, where that the seesaw kind of angles more towards the risk side. Um, and, you know, if you're training for something specific, if you if you want to for me to train at altitude or if you want to train for something specifically in the heat, obviously um, the risk reward tilts towards traveling. But, um, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for, uh, especially kind of in the winter of uh, playing it safe. Um, and, yeah, and, and that goes as well for you, the kind of, you know, as you said, the, the backup system around you but also um yeah also the, the training as well you know being five percent under rather than five percent over um that that said I, I must admit most places actually i've been in the world uh when i've had to find some kind of support you normally can find pretty good support uh quite quickly um and it's pretty it's quite amazing um you know the, the people out there who are fantastic at what they do all over the place that's an interesting phrase, 5% under rather than 5% over. And it's, I remember this time last year and thinking about that kind of idea and prospect for, for going for the Olympics. And so many people would have been just taking the edge off their training. Um, just from the point of view of, I don't, want, I don't want to suppress the immune system when I probably need one. <laughs> Has that been part of your thinking about kind of just your health as much as anything? I must admit, it hasn't really been part of my um, thinking in terms of health. Um, yeah, I, I personally was never massively worried about coronavirus for me. Um, you know, I, I young, healthy, uh, relatively young. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of quickly grasped and, and looked at the statistics around it and realized that that really wasn't that much of a risk to me. Um but yeah, so in terms of my immune system, no, I wasn't worried about that. Um, th- I guess the the five percent under thing, you know, the the nearer you get to hundred um, percent, your your injury risk is it not increasing, probably not increasing exponentially, but somewhere in between. You know, it's uh, significantly increasing um, uh, the closer you get to that. So you know, that for me, that that's. Um, that's kind of high risk reward strategy and uh, you, you don't want to do that too often. <laughs> is that something you've learned, Alistair? Is that 
um, in terms of the sort of wisdom of the 30 plus career stage where you've got to be, you've, you've, you've learned the lessons of injury and illness over the years. Is that something you've had to, to learn or have you always had that sense of I need to be careful because just in case? Uh, yeah, I'd love to say that I had learned it uh, categorically because I haven't. Uh, you know, I still still get it wrong. Um, I think, uh, you know, there is, if we're talking about that line, and I think uh, as an endurance athlete, you, you know, quite a lot of the time you are probably playing with that line. And, um, yeah, I very much, you know, remember having conversations uh, as a 20-year-old and people saying, oh, you know, you, you train really hard, you train far too much, Um you know, you won't have a very long career. And I, I, at the time I thought, well, firstly, I'd much prefer to be fantastic for two years and then and crash and burn. Um, and then obviously as a 21 year old, you never believe that's going to happen anyway. So, um, yeah, I think my, my not, I wouldn't say I've learned, I'd say my uh, perspective may have changed a little bit on that. I, and, um, yeah, I, I just tend to try and pick times now, I guess, when I really, I'm trying to push the boat out um, as it were, and, and get to that, get to those really kind of top hard training levels. Um, and it's actually not all that frequent. Right. Okay. That's interesting. So that, that just that very phrase of, I've sort of learned, <laughs> that's sort of alluding to your, um, I'm, I'm, I've got my phases or, or of intensity. Um, can I ask you a cheeky question? This is partly inspired by your Twitter profile image. Um, and it's a bit of an indulging question in that I want, I'm curious to verify whether a story about you is true. I've heard from a, 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 a good source and that's, that's why I want to, to check. Um, so the word was that junior race, I don't know where, I don't know where, and I tried to chase it this week, but I couldn't find the, the couldn't get a reply. When you were pushing yourself hard and you started to look a bit peaky and rather than, as perhaps most people would stop and throw up at the side, um, you vomited without breaking stride. Uh, is, that, is that true or is that an urban myth? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I must admit there's a few, though, these myths around. I thought you were going to say um, there's some story that came from somewhere that said I stopped to save a sheep at one point in the middle of a race. <laughs> and I can't, I can't remember that one either. Um but yeah, I, I do actually remember being really like, quite young in like cross country races or something and um, having this thing where I'd like dry vomit um, kind of towards the back end of a race and it happening a handful of times. And one of those things, I think, you, as a, you know, when you're a, a young athlete, you're like, right, you know, why has that happened? Um, better not eat chocolate bar half an hour before my race or, or whatever I was doing. I can't really remember. Um, but yeah. I mean, I, I guess to give a bit of context to that, from being 10 to 18, um, I was probably doing some kind of competitive event, whether that was triathlon, swimming events, uh, cycling events, running, fell running cross country uh, almost every single weekend. So <laughs> there's kind of a lot there. There's quite a few. I was, it was more interesting, less about the nutrition that you that might have caused it, more the fact that it didn't interrupt your focus on getting to the finish line. Yeah, I um, I think I've always been kind of very uh, focused in competition um, and very, very determined. And um, yeah, I think, to be honest with you, that's something that uh, looking back on it probably came very naturally to me, that the ability to yeah, really zone in on, um, on, on what I'm doing and trying to, you know, I, I always saw it as forcing like every single um a bit of energy, every, you know, every possible uh, bit of focus I've got, every every nerve and sinew and, and bit of muscle to propelling me forward um, and trying to wipe everything out and, and trying to kind of really hone that mentally uh, and physically. And, um, yeah, if, that's a really good thing, um, but it's also a bad thing because you can, you can really kind of push too far with it. But, um, yeah, I think, um, I think that's something that thankfully um, – hasn't always uh, has come kind of naturally to me and when when were you first aware of that you were quite a rare breed in that way i mean do you sort of looking around on some of these races and just thinking i'm i'm giving double here um and and that's getting me ahead or that's giving me results um where were you aware of your of your competitive drive quite early 
No, I don't think I was, actually. Um, I remember kind of going through my early teens and uh, just in, in kind of enjoying sport um, and being really determined to do well. Um, so, yeah, being at a swimming club, and I'd be the one that tried the hardest, even though if I wasn't the fastest. And um, starting to run and be like, right, the more running I do, the better I'll get um, and the better I'll do. And, and kind of being really determined um but that not really playing out in results as such. Um, so I never really thought anything of it, you know, um, right up to literally I was kind of 18, 19. Um, sport was just something I did uh, along with lots of other things that I did, um, something that I was really determined to do well at, but I was determined to do well, I guess, at my schoolwork as well and, and, and in other things. So and it was just another kind of facet of my life. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I'm not sure if it is that much of a, actual special attribute i think um the most of the people i'm racing uh are, are pretty good at pushing themselves when they need to um otherwise you you kind of wouldn't get there um you know you, you're racing guys who are, are also you know they also run their won their local cross country race because they're better at pushing themselves than all the other 12 year olds so um yeah and you rise up and yeah i think that the thing maybe and it's really difficult to say because it's one of those things that you actually don't know how other people function. Um, you know, you can't really compare yourselves to other people when you don't really know how hard they're pushing themselves and it's a, a moving target. But, um, yeah, I think for me, maybe how um, it comes easily, you know, I can be really tired and um, dive in a swimming pool, tired uh, on a cold morning and, you know, start racing Johnny or someone else next to me and that's it, you know, I'll, I'll push myself. <laughs> Do you, do you know, have, have you got a sense of where this has come from? This intensity, this focus, this diligence? Yeah, no idea at all. You know, um, it's so easy to uh, fall into the the cliche and, and the book that I, um, the kind of book, as I was working on the book, that the cliche of, yeah, you know, super intensity to, um, you know, make up for something or escape from something or, you know, make yourself a, a better existence. Um, I had the most comfortable, happy uh, upbringing, you know, possible um, from a, a really good kind of loving family, um, you know, with a mum that told me every week uh, not to do sport if it made me worry too much and, uh, you know, stress me out. Um, but yeah, so, so you know, none of those normal cliche uh, boxes to be ticked um I think it's just always been a, a a kind of inner drive um and I think actually that's a strength you know it's it's not something I've had to do or it's something you know that I've wanted really really wanted to do um and and actually um I think that's a that's a strength in itself all right so the research such as um s- the one that's springing to mind is this one that's been thrown around in the bit in the press about um, that there's a disproportionately high level of super elite champions that have experienced some sort of childhood upset or trauma, all these sorts of things mm-hmm. that perhaps that is causing them to then create create success or drive through sport. So you can't mm-hmm. you can't cling to any of that. It's just it's just been there, <laughs> a contented yeah. drive. Well, the I actually of it. read that bit of research. Well, like so many other things in in science and sport, yeah, it, it makes really nice logical sense that um, you, you you kind of find sport at a time when you're at low confidence due to a major life event, and you um, you ride the wave out of that by increasing confidence in sport. That's a really kind of alluring thought, isn't it? Um, and I can I see why people would jump to that or, or come to that conclusion, but yeah, it definitely wasn't the case in for me. I can I can see why it might cause it for some, um, but as you've identified, um, it you didn't have the cause, but you had it anyway. So, um, well, if anyone's listening, then uh, that has access to Alistair's transcript, <laughs> drop, <laughs> drop him a line. Um, and so, does that does that spill over to other aspects of your preparation and performance? Um, that drive, that in, uh, that industry. Uh, wanting to do things well does that apply to both your training but also your recovery too uh, are you meticulous in in that approach yeah um 
again, I, I think it's um, it's variable. Uh, I'm definitely not meticulous all the time, um, and I try to have relative on-off switches. And, and you know, I can be super intense at times, um, and l- a lot less intense uh, at other times. Um, and I like to think when I need to be, I can be you know focused across everything. Um, and yeah, recovery is definitely one of those things. You know, one of the things definitely as I've got older, um, I've focused a lot more on um, and has become a lot more important. Um, but yeah, you know, I guess a lot of the other things around, um, you know, ar- around sport for me. So in, in triathlon, um, you know, making sure I've got the best equipment and making sure I know the course and making sure I know about aerodynamics and making sure I've the best prepared I can be in terms of looking at altitude and heat, um, you know, working out, uh, protocols for myself of how that works and what that looks like and what's the best way to do it. Um, so I guess to that extent, yeah, I, I kind of take a relative amount intensity. Um, I don't always know actually intensity is the right word. I mean, definitely at points, but yeah, a bit like people often ask what motivates you to do X, Y, and Z. And, I use the anecdote, loads of things motivate me. You know, if I go swimming in the morning, I, I get up because it's what I do. It's habitual. I, I, I then walk downstairs because I'm looking forward to having a cup of tea. I get in the car because I'm looking forward to turning the heating, heated seat on. I walk in the pool because I'm looking forward to seeing my friends. I dive in the pool because I have to motivate myself to go training. And I start pushing myself because I'm competitive and I'm racing someone. So whatever you've got there, you've got half a dozen forms of motivation. Um, and I think it's kind of similar you know it's not always i'm doing this because it comes from a part of your mindset that's obsessional i think um yeah you know technically i enjoy it i enjoy most of my training i enjoy pushing myself i don't always enjoy it and i'm having to go out in wet and cold windy days and do it but in the same way um yeah i really enjoy looking into and learning how i can maximize recovering looking at that by learning about uh, HRV or how I can maximize race nutrition with various combinations of uh, uh, multidextrose and uh, fructose and glucose, you know, or, or how I can produce a, ultimately produce a, um, the best possible heat uh, uh, acclimation protocol for me uh, by reading all the science and um, having a go at it myself. Um, and yeah, that, that a lot of those are, I guess, labors of love and interest and um, when they wane, a bit of obsession takes over. <laughs> I suppose the origin of the question was that the idea that perhaps sometimes it's difficult for athletes to switch off because they're thinking about the next set or the, ne- the next session. And and that can come from a source of worry. I, I'm trying to cover off a lot of the risks that um, I'm facing and or I'm competing with athletes even though they're not there. And so if I'm not doing it, they're probably doing it. And that, that spectrum that I often see for athletes where some, some are quite wound up, actually, and have to have a way of switching off. And others are a little bit, yeah, I'll, yeah I suppose I'd do it, and quite, quite chilled out about it and follow a, a routine. What well, it sounds as though you're describing is coming at this from a point of curiosity. I'm interested. I'm into this. This is cool. <laughs> and it's fun. Yeah, I think a lot of it is a genuine... Um coming at it from a position of curiosity i am very uh, very curious interested in everything um but yeah and, and i think from a training point of view as well um you know a lot of my training in my early years was done um so i'd, I'd actually like ride to school in the morning on the canal which is like a million times better than getting on a crappy school bus you know i was cycling on a canal um seeing like kingfishers and meeting people I met every day for a chat um when otherwise I would have been a school bus and I did a lot of my running um in in the lunch hour at school when I you know get down to change rooms put my trainers on and get on and go out running and it was almost escapism and, and so I think um I don't know chicken and the egg but uh, I don't quite know what came first but that definitely helped this kind of sense of um training uh has been fun and enjoyable um and and then i think the the inquisitive thing is just kind of natural as well mm, well and we should mention you mentioned the book relentless secrets of the sporting elite um i'm looking at amazon now 8th of july so you've been hatching this plan for a, for a while um talking to some some great performers some great athletes people who've been at the top and 
that probably links to what you just said about curious. I'm, I'm interested to know. It, often you'd expect people just to write their autobiography and that'd be done. You've put something together that is actually embracing what you've experienced and almost checking it with other people too. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it probably started um, uh, in, in 2012. I... Um, did uh, something called Superstars, which I was useless at it. But uh, if you don't know what yeah. it is, like loads, loads of athletes. I, watch, I watched that. I watched it. I watched it. <laughs> and, then, um, and I was particularly terrible at the gym test. But the, the really interesting bit was actually just talking to other athletes um, and many of them that I've actually stayed really good friends with and, and realizing actually there's some incredible similarities and obviously some massive differences. So, you know, one obvious example, a, a guy that won a gold medal in um, – double trap shotgun shooting peter wilson i stayed really good friends with um you know he talked about how he'd kind of had a really focused um six or eight weeks of training in out in the middle east where he was aiming to shoot i can't remember the numbers but tens of thousands of cartridges effectively um and i was like yeah you know a lot of my training really is based around the ability to do a really focused kind of six weeks um and that's what kind of makes it um and, and just kind of that's just one example, but interesting, really super interesting um, similarities um, and, and big differences. Anyway, fast forward, and I kind of had this idea and the opportunity to to write this book, and yeah, really enjoyed doing so. I can't, I can't wait to to read it. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, but I think there's something to be said there. Just just that very sense of saying, ah, oh, you you've experienced a similar sort of thing, or. I've got a match. There's a similarity. It's it's not a copy and paste because you're not a competitor. You're not doing the same sort of training as I am. But we're going through a similar sort of experience. Given that you are elite, uh, you're you're at the, the the fine end of the normal distribution curve. There are going to be very few people that are actually going to be doing what you're doing. Um, and so to compare with similar levels of elite is quite a fascinating process, really. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. Um, and I, I got the opportunity to talk to some people who I probably wouldn't have talked to otherwise. Um, you know, in snooker, Ronnie O'Sullivan, um, absolutely, he's a massive running fan. Um, so all he wanted to do was talk about running and running training. And all I wanted to do <laughs> is talk about the uh, mentality of what it's like when you're lining up a, a shot, you know, and um, everything's on that one shot. And for, for me, I, I can always say I stand on the start line and if something goes wrong, I've got basically two hours to sort it out. If, you know, if, if you mess that up in that moment, um, there's no coming back. And similarly talking to um, Alistair Cook when the team pressure, you know, you got the pressure of the team and, and, the, and the country from that respect on you and, um, again, you know, you're standing there facing someone who's putting, throwing the ball at you very quickly, and um, there is no second or third chance. Effectively, you know, how do you cope and, and deal with that? So, yeah, I, I a lot of those questions that I've uh, as a as an amateur sports fan as well, you know, I kind of follow and are interested in in everything. Um, so it, it was fantastic to be able to ask those, and at the same time. Um, hear more of the stories you know i was actually lucky enough to um sit down with ronnie uh at his mum's house and she cooked his dinner and we just sat there ate dinner and had a kind of informal chat a bit of an interview um saw some of his trophies etc um and yeah I've, I've been lucky enough to do various interviews with other um other sports people in similar ways and I'm very very fortunate for that and and really enjoyed it and how did you choose the people that you spoke to? Did you um, think draw up a bit of a dream list of, of people that you recognised um, some level of excellence, uh, or was it within your network? Bit of both, yeah. People uh, that I knew I could access with, uh, people that I was really interested in, um, and yeah, and people as well. That you know, I, I set out actually wanting to be able to meet people and, and do things. So. Um, there's a legendary Yorkshire cyclist called Beryl Burton who's fascinated me for a long time. Um, I, I sadly she's passed away, but uh, went went cycling with her daughter. You know, great kind of um, anecdote to write and talk about in the book. Uh, at my, initially, my plan was to be able to do that. Uh, you know, to do things like that with with everyone. I 
unfortunately life and uh, thing thing got in the way and, and schedules you know trying to schedule time with um with people uh who are busy <laughs> when i'm busy and they're more busy than me it's very difficult so it didn't end up all like that but um you know a lot of it did and um yeah it was a combination of all kinds of things some of it was as well you know i um right i uh i want to talk about high pressure um and i want to talk about those situations and so you think about right you know high pressure situations um i was thinking well um for me the first kind of really exciting olympics were sydney in 2000 um who's that who's the pressure um so ian thorpe uh kathy freeman who you know how can i talk around that um and then link that quite nicely into someone i know relatively well in adam pt who's who's kind of got that coming in uh, this year so I, I tried to link things together out of interest and um yeah see see where that took me mm, wow brilliant i can't wait to read it um all right i need to ask you about sub seven um so an iron man in under seven hours um you and you said you're ferociously competitive so where did this idea come from uh so yeah the sub seven um yeah it was actually my idea originally that we were um a few of us kind of sat round a table um not long after the uh kipchoge 159 attempt and um just thinking actually what could put triathlon on the map you know kind of ignite public interest uh, be inspirational um and one of the things i was really keen on is telling the story of everything that goes into um one of these because actually in, in lots of ways iron man there's a lot more technical stuff to get right um and you know you have to have a really good team around you to get that technical stuff right more one of the things i had to learn actually quite quick was it's more significant than olympic distance where you potentially have that support network around you there's yeah iron man's kind of another level um and you're trying to get that expertise. And I thought, you know, this story is amazing. Like, you know, we're telling the story of how do you make someone swim as fast as possible in, in terms of the technology of the wetsuit um, and drafting. Um, that story is really obvious on the bike uh, and the, the aerodynamics, pacing strategy, power, how it, it comes down to everything, you know, physiology, the balance between um, uh, how much carbs you can get in uh, and how much, you know, how many carbs you're burning per per second to what power you can effectively hold over those four hours on the bike or three and a half hours when it comes to uh, sub seven. And then similarly on the run, um, what, what intensity does that look like for you? And um, yeah, so for me, that was telling a story of uh, technology of equipment, uh, aerodynamics, um, weather conditions and meteor- meteorology, uh, location, um, are you better off doing this thing at altitude or not? Is it better being hot because hot air is hot, humid with low density, which means you're faster, but is obviously going to slow you down physiologically. Um, and yeah, really interesting. And one of, and telling that story um, was one of the, the initial ideas. And, and then I went away and um, basically kind of modeled it. Uh, and the, the swim and the, the run modeling is you know, maybe very slightly better than um back of back of five packet modeling you know in terms of yeah if you, if you get a um you know a draft on the swim you can find academic papers that will say it'll save you 15 to 25 percent in energy savings that means you can go a bit faster and with with um with a wetsuit that's a bit thicker you can go a bit faster and that's my anecdotal kind of feeling etc etc um, and on the run you know shoes a bit faster not slowing down for 10 aid stations for 10 seconds that's saved you one minute 40 um but the bike i mean you can model the bike very uh, pretty accurately and um you know just using simple physics i built the model that would that in terms of inputting what's um climate data in um air pressure humidity and temperature um my drag area and various other things modeled my previous performances fairly accurately so you can like you can you can calculate that what you should be able to do um and and yeah and that's how i went about doing it and kind of showed technically it's definitely possible um you just need these conditions and um yeah hopefully we're going from there wow so i I didn't quite realize that how much of a scholar you were 
of actually doing this as well in terms of the the mathematical modeling the the processes behind it um that is curiosity that is mm. uh, i think that that's another level of of involvement are you are you literally architect for this then well yeah i'm not definitely not architect in terms of uh the event um yeah that's all you know um yeah that that's all gonna be put on but yeah you know for example uh we had a you know we've been chatting about venues there's one potential venue we talked about a couple of weeks ago and um yeah it basically meant there was a it was a lap and there was a corner um on this lap that was every four or five k and i was saying um actually no um, i'm pretty confident from modeling if you can only go around this corner at less than 40 kilometers an hour um and you need to be averaging we think 51 to 52 kilometers an hour that's gonna cost you x seconds per lap um and that's gonna mean that um it's not possible um in this in these terms so yeah that's kind of the level of involvement and detail there's been um and i've really enjoyed that but i I think it's something i've learned you know in triathlon is a relatively um small sport so all along i've kind of done quite a bit of this kind of stuff myself um but yeah just kind of interest interest in it and um yeah this this project in particular has kind of really um ignited that as well and um so so you are taking a leaf out of the ineos sub two then in terms of using every possible advantage um and talking to peter vint who was one of the consultants uh, on the ineos project and um, asking him a bit, a bit about the kind of critical commentary around lasers and retarmacking the camber of a, of a roundabout and so on. And he was just talking about, well, that might, that might be for some of the people that don't like change. But actually inside it, there was just real joy of innovation. And, oh, what if we could do this? What if we could do that? Or how about this? We thought of that. And how sparky it was as opposed to, just doing the same thing all the time. And you, you allude there in terms of actually telling that story. Is that part of the project where you're going to be communicating this, the, the changes that you're making? Yeah, um, definitely. I, I think there's a couple of things to say to that. I think the first one, yeah, the initial idea was um, in my head to be a Netflix type series where you had an episode on this is what we've done for the swim. You know, this is what we've done for the bike. This is why we've chosen this location, this is why we've chosen this day on this type of, you know, this time of year is particular um, for, um, you know, weather conditions, pressure conditions, temperature, humidity, wind, etc. Um, that's the initial idea. And, uh, yeah, hopefully someone's, someone's going to be interested enough to actually make it a reality. Um, but, yeah, so that, um, I think, um, that, yeah, the other thing um that's kind of around, yeah, just the joy of innovation. I, I think that's kind of um, sport in general. Um, I, I kind of was going to say earlier when you were saying about learning about injuries and, and where the line is, you know, I think one of the difficult things is you you might learn and understand your body of a year or two years ago, but it's almost like you've got a new engine, a chassis this year, and you'll have a new one next year. So you are actually constantly innovating in various ways, um, especially if you want to have a long career. That's, you know, once you start going over a few years and, and you're trying to be competitive, it's almost constant innovation, I think. Um, and that, you know, in terms of your physiology and training and, and keeping up with it and trying to progress the changes around you as well. That, I mean, that might be tactical, it might be technical, it might be in terms of aerodynamics or, or whatever. Um, and that's definitely part of it and something that, yeah, I enjoy. I think there's so much wisdom in that, in the sense that the um, you're moving like a you're you've got a cog here that's about say for example the the climate around you, the people around you, the the training that you can do, your age, the time of the season, all of these things that move constantly that mean that making a decision on a given day is actually relatively complicated. I don't want to make it complicated, but um, but you've got so many things to weigh up. Um, I think that, that certainly many performers that I've worked with over the years, there's a sweet spot early in their career when they're really lapping up the ideas. Uh, I've got some support. I've got a physio. Fantastic. I've got a biomechanist. I've got, I've got someone looking after my, my equipment and they lap it up and then they start to win. And then <laughs> there's a slight shift in the, 
actually, I just want to do what I did before. Um, because of that certainty that's attached to it, that process gave me the win. And then the, it might be a bit harsh, but almost closed mindedness increases a bit as you get further up. It sounds as though you've been able to kind of break that mold by asking these questions of yourself about what might be possible. Yeah, possibly. I think a, a key um, facet to that is, um, fortunately, and I think part of it was me and part of it was to do with the the great kind of people I had around me in my early years in sport, um, was that those decisions were always kind of down to me. Um, and that doesn't work for everyone. But for me, it was always really important that I stood on the start line and um those decisions and it might be a super complex decision you know really specialist thing on an injury where i'd seen a few different doctors or it might be something about going on a training camp or but whatever that decision was you know i could have as much input as i wanted from different sources but i would make that decision um and that was always a really important kind of facet of everything i've done so um, if you start from that point, um, you know, you, you, I think you start with a, a relatively open mind and you start from a point of um, not always more information, but more good informed information is always a good thing. Um, don't get too stressed out by having too many angles if you can cope with that. But I, I don't think I ever have. Mm, interesting. OK, so quite a lot of confidence coming from owning it, ownership on the start line in, in that sense. Yeah, well, not necessarily. I think confidence is one thing, and I think that's important. But um, that kind of direct, almost feedback loop, like to really simplify it, um, I did a race. This went badly. Is that linked to that decision or that decision? Right. What am I going to do about that decision? Um, and I'm, this is what I'm going to do. A, B, C. Which at that point, obviously, is that you know, learn more about this, talk to this person, act on it. Um, and I think that I'm, I'm not saying I'm. I'm not saying that it was completely down to me, you know, this went wrong or this went right and I made this decision. I think it's the like the feedback loop of, um, yeah, this is working or it isn't working. What am I going to do to make it work or what I'm going to do to keep it working? And at that point, reaching out. And I think a lot of the time I thought uh, that, you know, if something wasn't working and I'm like, this isn't working, you know, you're then telling someone else why it isn't working. They're trying to work out why their decision didn't work. Um, and then there's 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 kind of loads of interference in those um, in those kind of pathways, and I much prefer the direct. Um, so kind of less about the confidence, more about um, kind of direct decision making, and that's something else I've always been really interested about. Um, yeah, decision making, the conviction of that, what that leads to in terms of performance, um, and yeah, the, uh, ways to make really good clinical decisions on 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 the basis of the information you have at hand. Can you give me an example of that? That sounds sounds interesting. Yeah, well, um, yeah, a really simple example, I guess, um, is a racing situation example. So uh, you're in a race. Um, let's say there is a attack, you know, going up the road in a simple, you know, you're in a group of 40 people. Um, there's two or three people going up the road. Um, do you cover that? um at the the downside of um losing energy um or do you go with it or do you just sit and wait at the upside of you know other people are losing energy hopefully it comes back together um that's a decision you've got to make um off insight because it's super quick um so you haven't really got time to consci- consciously process it necessarily um and there's loads of information there's like current information of who are those people up the road what's the course like what are the weather conditions like uh, what's the race been like so far? Is it fast? Is it slow? Um, what's the danger? Um, you know, can those people in front of me run? Can they not? Um, all these things, and it's not special to triathlon. Obviously, that's every sport you're making technical decisions. Um, and I, yeah, I, I thought uh, my way of kind of really honing that ability was to constantly check it myself, effectively. So go in races um, and not formally do it, but think uh, afterwards. Did I do this right? Didn't I do it right? How do I do it best? You know, and let's let's try, let's actively try things and, and experiment. Um, and yeah, I, I thought that was important 
for the reasons I guess I've tried to just to articulate in terms of the, mm. the direct feedback loop to me. But also I, I thought, um, and this is a kind of anecdotal kind of feeling I had ages ago and kind of I've actually seen some stuff about it recently, but the strength of um, those learning processes of, of actually doing it in high pressure situations. So um, I, I thought were we're going to be much stronger than, you know, watching it on a video or learning in a classroom or being told it by uh, a, someone who'd never even been in that situation. Um, so, yeah, that's the, that's the that was kind of the basis behind it. And I kind of had this idea of, um, yeah, to make good decisions. You know, you've got a library kind of of information, um, but to access that library, you know, well, you need you need the information. I think most people probably have the information somewhere but you need to access relevant information and you need to be able to access it fast. Um, and for that to be the case, that information has to be um, kind of significant. And I think the significance mm. comes from the kind of strength of the situation that you've learned it in. Um, and that was my, that was kind of my ability of experimenting um, in racing to, to do it effectively. Um, and yeah, I think that then we're, we're kind of onto this really interesting um uh juxtaposition of yeah how do you still kind of kind of feel the ability to experiment in races and not get caught up in the pressure of the situation um and that was something else that you know i kind of thought a, a, quite a lot about and, and tried to keep active you know i i'm prepared to risk take here um for the greater good and an interest rather than actually sit on my laurel, laurels and um be uh yeah kind of be really cautious about it there was times to be cautious but yeah time times to be to to use it as an experience as well ah oh, there's there's so much so much in there i could go in so many different tangents but the that just that sense of um i'm not going to be able to draw on the learning or the idea or the conclusion um unless i've reinforced it with trialing it out under those pressure situations that's what i'm hearing and i think it's easy to for a lot of performers and coaches to think we'll just prepare kind of we'll just try and make it easy and comfortable and and then we'll pop up and it will be okay as opposed to that element of performance needs stress testing in the same way that an engineer would stress test a piece of material for example we need to test that 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 works under that level of pressure um so to, to loop back to the sub seven, um, so I, an Ironman is not something you can do that often in terms of trialing and testing. Um, are, you, are you breaking the components down? How are you approaching it? Yeah, I, well, so my um, I, I want to race short distance this year. Hopefully, hopefully things will go well. I'll be able to race short distance well, qualify for Olympics, race at the Olympic Games. And that will be the last, um, basically, Olympic distance short rate I'll do, you know, retire from it at that point. And then I'll be completely focusing on Ironman and long distance. Um, I think, uh, yeah, kind of firstly, 80 to 90% of the training, I think it's fairly similar. You, you're basically training to be endurance athlete. You're, you're training for a good um, aerobic capacity. You're, you're training your top-end VO2 max um, to have a good spread. Uh, I think for Ironman, there's a couple of, from a physiological point of view, um, I think there's an efficiency at pace thing that's a bit different. So actually, if I'm going to pedal at X watts, um, just being really smooth um, at that wattage, obviously that's going to reduce the physiological load over a period of time. You know, if I'm trying to do 300 watts, if I can ride at 300 watts, it's over four hours, that's significantly less physiological stress than actually riding at 310 for a bit and 290 for a bit. Um, that's quite quite specific, but so that that actual pacing thing is quite a difficult thing to do. Um, I think there's so, a so can I can I just pick up on that? So so reducing the kind of um, the, in the technical term stochastic aspect. So you're you're yeah. reducing the variability, trying to keep it close. We all know that if um, yeah you want to go out and run a five minute mile, it's kind of easier running a five minute mile than it is running half of it at four thirty and half of it at five thirty. So basically that and over four years, but kind of really honing in on that pace, I think it is important. I think the other physiological aspect of it is your kind of metabolic profile. And, you know, you're effectively trying to shift your metabolic profile to be able to 
be a little bit more fat efficient. Um, yeah, that's super in vogue at the moment. And uh, my experience is you can definitely go too far, but yeah, it just, you know, you're trying to do an Ironman. Um, it's very, <laughs> another alluring uh, idea that the more fat you can burn at a specific watches, the better it is because the less carbohydrate you're going to have to take in and the less stomach issues. We all know you, you can take a maximum amount of carbohydrate in an hour. So um, you can't rely on it too much. So the metabolic thing I think is is important. And then you've got the technical aspects around it. So yeah, aerodynamics on the bike really is, is the main technical aspects, you know, uh, a reduction in your CDA because your air resistance is a squared relationship to speed um, is evidently very significant. So um, yeah, that that's important. And yeah, we all think, uh, and it, we all like to have fancy bikes and stuff, but the body is, I think 85 to 90% of the aerodynamic drag on your bike. So it's your position and your suit uh, and helmet that are really important. So optimizing that, um, and that's most of it. When, when you, when I kind of actually look at the, um, the sub seven, it, I mean, if you break it down, like very simple, if we go back to our, uh, probably shouldn't say a cigarette packet, but you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. You, know, you mentioned, you mentioned 51 kilometers an hour for a, for a corner. And I, and I, I've, on my little cigarette packet here, mm. I haven't got a cigarette packet, my notes, mm. um, I'm going, Ooh, that's, that's aiming for about what? three thirty, three forty. So can you, can you, I, I don't know if I've got that right or not, but can you break down the, yeah. the kind of idea that you're going for? Well, it's quite, it's, I mean, swim 45 minutes. You, you haven't got a lot to play with there. And I think once you start right. going a lot faster than 45 minutes, um, you, you're being, kind of again exponentially inefficient um you know for me i kind of know what that pace is physiologically once you're going above or actually close and above the threshold obviously that's not efficient you know for for every increase of one or two seconds per hundred you're really burning through oxygen um and carbohydrate um you've got i think about 230 for a really fast marathon and that's probably on the optimistic side so you're at um 315 there and then that leaves you with 345 so that's where 51 point something kilometers an hour comes from in, in in that range with a bit of transition time in there um yeah i think you want i mean yeah there is ways of making a swim a bit faster and i think the swim will be fast from technology in the wetsuits um one of the things that i've, I've come, kind of come across with it is that um actually what do you want to do to this to still make it legitimate you know for example with the swim you can swim down a river and do it in 25 minutes uh <laughs> and uh, and on the bike you know you can very easily like put in the dynamics and you could draft behind a articulated truck for the whole thing and do it in three hours yeah. um but obviously that's not um that's not very interesting in a similar way if you stick to Ironman rules you're not going to do it in under seven hours so it's finding part of the challenge is finding a sweet spot where six hours 59 is still really challenging and really interesting and really legitimate at the same time um and that is going to involve stuff that isn't within the rule so that's like thicker wetsuits um drafting on the bike you know maybe one-way courses you know stuff like that um so yeah, that, that's the yeah. So if we go on three hours forty five for the bike here, um, you're you're looking at those kind of speeds. You want to save a few more minutes, so you want really three hours forty. Um, and yeah, it, it works out that even at higher, um, really to hold that kind of speed on the front, even with really good conditions, really good rolling resistance conditions, really low air resistance, um, and uh, you're still at the kind of higher end of wattage of what um you know really good really really good triathletes are going to do for uh, maybe an hour or so um and what top end cyclists are going to do for maybe a little bit longer than that um so you're effectively in a team time trial kind of format there of 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 doing that those kind of speeds um and then it's deciding how many people are they coming in or out um and i think that's going to depend on actually the location um yeah that one the location is never going to be perfect you know you want to find a 
nice flat bit of water that's right next to a bit of road that's super that's got really good low resistance tarmac on it with good good uh, weather conditions and right next to a run you can run that's going to be flat and um and then obviously you want the right weather conditions you want it to be relatively warmer and more humid on the bike to decrease your air resistance and you want it to be cool once you're running so you've not got that physiological pressure um and so you, you're trying to kind of combine all these factors and yeah that, that's why it's so interesting <laughs> yeah wow okay so so you're, you're looking for a change change of weather or a strange topography that can cause that for you but it's, so the conclusion is it's not going to be in yorkshire by the sounds of it yeah i can definitely conclude it's not <laughs> yeah we don't have the uh, air resistance conditions the rolling resistance conditions yeah i think the obvious actually the easy thing to do there isn't it is the time of day you're riding after afternoon and running when it gets dark yeah okay yeah of course and um and so how far off do you th- do you think you are in terms of your the physical changes that you might need to uh, to adapt to and and the the gain that you might need to uh, achieve? Uh, yeah, I think physically um, for me, you know, I, tr- I try try to be the place in training where I'm kind of three months off. You know, any anything once you're kind of relatively fit within kind of two to three months of training you're not going to get any that much better at anything else you know um once you've got a very high base uh, so like from where i am now i'd like to think in, you know touch wood and everything went well i could be in the best position to race at my best position to race olympic distance race or my best position to race an ironman distance race or anything in between um so yeah i mean that's the kind of time frame um it's the other yeah it's the technical things around it, a bit more of the project but which we're kind of kicking off, you know, um, having a suit that's um, really aerodynamic, having a wetsuit that's fast, really honing in um, on that bike position. The, I'm sure, you know, the bike position effectively is the more difficult, more uncomfortable the position, the more aerodynamic it is. So can you train yourself to hold that better and still be able to produce the power and then still be able to get off and run afterwards or not? Um, and finding that uh, that kind of, uh, trade-off um and, and how's yeah. that been going so far that the, the uh, going from riding on the tops effectively to to be in um in a tuck position how's have you found the transition what's the have you, and, and also part of that is have you been able to find an, a happy medium that you can uh, work with yeah i mean like anything uh, you're always trying to kind of make that happy medium a bit better <laughs> so yeah mm. i mean i had i actually um transitioned onto a new bike the new scott plasma came out last year and i transitioned to make my position a bit more aerodynamic onto that um yeah I, i'm actually not 100 percent convinced it's worked for me um yeah it's again it's just a classic sporting trade-off you know and and everyone knows that you and the only thing you can do is be really informed by the um, science in that this is um, this is the reduction in your CDA by moving from here to here. And you have to go and work out, well, that has this impact of me being able to produce the power, me being in this position, me then running afterwards. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, and I think over, especially Ironman distance, it's a long time. It's four hours to be in that position and, and then you're getting off and running afterwards so yeah that's a that that's a constant thing and i think probably as the body changes a little bit as well um it's um kind of optimizing it for the 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 state your body's in at that time Hmm. and and how much of a team effort is this and i know there's another a few other people involved um lucy charles barkley for example uh how, how much of a project is it that that you're all pulling in the same direction um, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating uh, project. One of the brilliant things um, about the Sub Seven is it really seems to have ignited kind of interest in um, different people actually, and and that's been brilliant. Um, and it, yeah, it is a, you know if you think yeah, it's a project that you're maximising physiology, you're maximising nutrition, you're maximising aerodynamics, you're maximising conditions, um, and uh, and working with different people across that. So yeah, I'm, I'm really fortunate to um yeah have a have a great team to to maximize all those things you know even to the to, to the extent obviously uh do doing the aerodynamic stuff and um 
uh, having a, I've got a, a model of me made that the, we're testing suits on to have the most aerodynamic suit. So I don't have to be doing it to <laughs> actually uh, producing a, a bar extension. So the tri bars that go at the front to, um, yeah, the best possible bars and, and they're being done by Syncross, which is just a, a part of the bike brand I'm sponsored by. Um, so that, yeah, there's all these kind of moving parts. Um, and that, yeah, that, that's fascinating. Will you get to keep the dummy afterwards? Didn't ask that. I hope, I'm not sure I want it. <laughs> don't, I don't. I don't need another one of me. <laughs> just, just in the garage, or make it into a coffee table, or something. <laughs> um, but when I looked into the the company that's backing it, Phoenix Foundation, I was I was sort of expecting because I didn't know much about the company. Um, so expecting it to be related to a big corporate as as much as anything, but it was social welfare organization and you meant you mentioned about kind of the the ripple effects that of you know let's let's try and do this to to create the conversation have you got a broader uh, almost societal goal that you're trying to achieve with this yeah uh, absolutely um from going right back uh, almost 10 years now um johnny and i realized we had a kind of a an obligation but also a, a great um position to be able to um inspire uh, people to do sport and obviously use triathlon to do that um partly because we were we were getting invited into talk um i think every school in yorkshire probably probably the north of england and so you know we were thinking what, what's the what's the way to do this um we, we kind of really feel like we've got responsibility and, and that's why we started the foundation and that's been brilliant and so kind of over the years look for partners that have a, a similar goal on that front and um the Phoenix Foundation um, that's backed by a, a, a kind of Polish backer, and he, he's really got these um, these goals as well. So that's something really exciting. And, um, yeah, we're going to start rolling out more of our charity events um, with them, hopefully from 2022, um, and telling this story as well of uh, actually, you know, the, the story of Sub7 hopefully is actually so much more than activity, you know, I've always used the example of triathlons fantastic because our foundation delivers uh, triathlon days for a thousand kids at the time. We did over 10 last year. So getting tens of thousands of kids through to do triathlon and really it's about having that opportunity. My whole belief is about giving people opportunity. So if uh, young Jimmy comes along and he liked running, um, actually he's then inspired and we can signpost him to go and do some more running or more swimming or more triathlon. I, I kind of wanted the Sub 7 project to be partly about that, partly about kind of as cliche as it sounds, showing people that really ridiculously impossible things can be possible and the interest around that and partly by um, democratizing, I guess, and making interesting and simplifying and, and relevant kind of some of the science and technology that goes into these things. Um, I was lucky, had a, you know, had a great upbringing, went to a great school, um, really kind of had a passion for academics. But I also saw that actually, um, you know, friends that I rode bikes with, they would have been fascinated in, in the science, I guess, of um, aerodynamics. Of And it is simple physics, uh, you know, aer- aerodynamics on lo- and, and telling that story. And um, that's been another real interest of mine. So, um, yeah, that, that's kind of where, where we'd like to get with it uh, and we're aiming for that <laughs> and do you have many thoughts kind of post-competition and i mean you know i don't mean you got to stop uh, several athletes still want to compete and still train but um but but that top end of competition you said about the olympics um this year hopefully fingers crossed mm-hmm. and then um further ironman and sub seven and so on mm-hmm. do you have thoughts about what what after your sporting hang up your aero suit i don't know what the right phrase is for triathlon hang up your well it's a full kit list isn't it <laughs> yeah uh yeah well i think um firstly uh, i'm always going to um be uh training and being competitive at something um one of the things about having a career in elite sport is there's loads of things that i haven't been able to do that i'd love to be able to do like um adventure challenges races you know, crazy things like um, Ultra Tour of Mont Blanc and Marathon de Sables and particularly bike races here and there and extreme triathlons like the Norseman. So all, all those kind of things. Um, so that's, I've got a very long bucket list of uh, <laughs> those kind of things to do. And then, yeah, a portfolio of other things that interest me. Um, one, one of the 
actual I guess really the good things to come out of the last year is it's been giving me the time and the kind of um the space to think and and work out what what those things are um yeah and I'm lucky to be in the position and I, I also think it's been really important for me to um put have an idea of what those are so you know it, it's not it's going to be hopefully four or five years um but if it was tomorrow uh, I wouldn't be down the pub well not that we could go to the pub these days but I wouldn't be down the pub you know with nothing to do I've got a kind of portfolio of interesting um kind of relevant and inspiring things to do yeah brilliant um well look it's been fascinating talking to you um hearing about the sub seven project the book coming out um uh, but also just hearing a little bit about how you approach it um your mindset but also the meticulous approach you've 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 as much schooled me on on some of the aspects there so impressive um how can people follow the event because we don't know when it's going to happen but assuming um that it needs to a number of things need to Mm -hmm. combine for this to to happen not only the readiness of the project but but um you know date it might not be set until the last minute i presume but how can people stay engaged yeah, well, I'm very confident it's going to happen. Um, when and where is, is anyone's guess. Uh, I think um, basically it's spring next year. So 2022, um, yeah, that kind of probably between March and May, uh, depending on the location um, that we decide on. Um, you can stay up to date with it um, by following me on, on Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, as we, I mean, like I said, my focus well, in theory, um, if everything goes well, we'll um, really kind of turn to it from the back end of this year. So after that, obviously, my preparation um, will be ramping up and yeah, I'll be really hoping to be able to tell the story of um, what that looks like as well. Amazing. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Alistair. Thanks very much. like to follow Alistair on Twitter then have a look at Ali Brownlee Try that's T-R-I at the end and all things related to the sub 7 and sub 8 there's a website set up www.sub7sub8.com have a look at um, Alistair's profile on Twitter he's got a link tree there with all the links you can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and support underscore champs we're on LinkedIn and Instagram too and lastly, if you're enjoying these conversations, it'd be amazing if you could take just two minutes out of your day, your busy schedule, to leave an honest review on iTunes. It really helps the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.